Hello everyone, it's November 23rd, 2021. So finally, Astra has achieved orbit, and we're going to talk about the bright future ahead of them. And then we talked to Matthew Coons of Maston Space Systems about FAST, which is a fast way of building a landing pad as you land on it. Pretty amazing stuff, so let's get to it, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 335 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we have a big show this week. Uh, I guess we should try to get through it. But really quickly, I guess um, since we don't mention it like anywhere else, we should talk about uh, that little ASAT test that happened last week or this week, I guess, earlier on. Uh, since that's all that anyone's really talking about, it seems, um, yeah. we found some other news. But yeah, a lot of people are not happy about it. I watched the Scott Manley video on it. That was the first I, you know, the first like info I got about it. Um, and I found it rather surprising. Like, uh, why did they do that? Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess we would, we just wanted to touch on what this means for station, right? Yeah, but, but station was locked down for like two days or something. Like it was pretty dramatic. They had to seal off as many hatches as they could just in case there was a depressure event. You don't want it to affect the whole station. So, right. So to be clear, Russia didn't attack the ISS. They did a, a <laughs> no. anti-satellite test where they blowed up an old satellite, an old Russian military satellite. And the, the debris cloud happened to come pretty close to the ISS. And in the show notes, there's a link to a YouTube video, um, which is, I think it's Chris Bergen. I think, I think it's two different uh, people from NASA space flight and they are talking to, yeah, Chris uh, what's G. It? It's oh, is it Chris, Chris G? G? Okay. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're talking to Jonathan McDowell. McDowell. Boy, my, my brain went blank. They're talking to Jonathan McDowell about the, uh, the orbital mechanics involved. And like at one point they, they're like, okay, so how did, how did Russia not know that this was going to happen? Like they picked all these trajectories. They should have known that this is, that it was going to come, uh, and, uh, and blow past the station. And Jonathan had what I believe is the correct answer, which is, yeah, but you know, the, just don't care. <laughs> he was like, yeah. you know, it, the probability is fairly low. It's high probability when we're talking about human lives, but you know, on, on balance, there's not a high probability that this was going to do anything. And it, and it, indeed it didn't. There was no, pro- there are no impacts that we know of, but yeah, I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> This wasn't like an intentional attack on station. Uh just just happened to to be a conjunction there. Yeah, I think this is analogous to, you know, we often bring up in a, in a a nicer context how being space geeks, we learn about things and we know and we talk about things that the rest of the public doesn't know or care about all the time. And this is that happening though at the much larger level where this is yeah. geopolitics that are not really factoring in something yeah. like potential collision damage with the international space station this is rat- this is saber rattling that is much more to do with you know these really really top level mm-hmm. uh, type of political decisions and so it's almost not even a space story space is the it's incidental to space that we, we you know the iss unfortunately is the victim of this yeah but uh it's 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 yeah it's it's a military and geopolitics story really at its heart Let's talk about Astra. They made it. Uh, lucky number seven. Yeah. yeah. And now I didn't watch this because it was like one o'clock in the morning. Uh, did anyone else see it? Oh, no. Not me. <laughs> no. Yeah. I didn't think so. Yeah, being being uh, further out west than you guys, I had the best opportunity and I still was asleep uh, before. <laughs> but th- this Astra launch, though, what I, I saw some great uh, uh, descriptor for it, that it was the first undisputed success. <laughs> 
of of Astra. Yeah, for the launch vehicle. Honestly, it's the first undisputed success of, you know, new space companies in a long time. Or, you know, mm-hmm. first Ooh. kind of success. Um everything else has been really qualified um with so many, you know, so many little additional qualifiers, just little tags. Oh, it's first in this. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the first if you consider this. And this is just like they they straight up went to space, you know? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> or they they went to orbit. <laughs> there's there's no arguing with them getting up into orbit. And you know, they went to a uh, a 310 kilometer uh or 500 mile orbit. Like that's space. There that is well above anybody's definition of space or of orbit. So wouldn't it be the other way around? Like the numbers don't make sense. Oh, you're right. Cause, because miles are, are, yeah. So they inverted space time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, I did watch the playback and comparing that to the previous launch, which, you know, went sideways, you can see how much faster it, it's supposed to lift off the pad. You know, like that's how it's supposed to launch. And, and, and just to be clear, in case anybody missed it, right? The, the last Astro launch did not make it to orbit and it, had one of the most interesting anomalies <laughs> when the yeah. engine failed right off the bat and it zooted sideways for hundreds of feet before it finally started yeah. going vertical, which was frankly a miracle that it did that in the first place, I think. <laughs> okay, so this this was their fourth orbital uh, launch attempt. And at first that seemed wrong to me, right? So, like, I knew this is this is launch 0007 because they, they've got the thousandth place already blocked out there. Um, well, like I, I knew that they hadn't done seven orbital attempts, but I thought they had done additional orbital attempts back when they were uh, competing in the DARPA launch challenge. Actually, it turns out they didn't. So their first uh, launch attempt was back in September of last year. That's really good for people listening to the archives. It's only November, 2021 now. So like, it's, that's really great. And so for the, the DARPA launch challenge, you know, they, it got down to the point where they were the only competitors left. Um, but they, they never actually made their attempt to do the challenge, which was what to launch two or three orbital payloads within a certain amount of time, uh, within, within a week or whatever. And they, they had done launches while they were, you know, the last competitor, but they were all suborbital challenges. So it, it's really interesting to me that like it took them basically a year of trying once a quarter to get to orbit. So the launch challenge definitely seems like it, it was too early in their, you know, maturity curve. To, to make them a real contender, um, if it took them this long, but like, that's, that's fine. Like the DARPA launch challenge was not the make or break for Astra. It wasn't even the reason that Astra was formed, right? Astra used to be, uh, ventures, right? They were just the stealth company, right? No, no, no. Ve- Ventions is the name of the company. Oh, Ventions. Um, oh, okay. Ventions. Yeah. Um, like, you know, Astra is, has been doing this for a while. Like the, these folks, you know, Chris Kemp, They've been doing this for a while. It, it was not mm-hmm. about being ready for the arbitrary deadline that DARPA set, you know, ar- arbitrary in the sense of uh, in the lifespan of their company. So they've only tried to do this four times. It it only took them three fails to get to orbit. Um, and, you know, like that sounds ridiculous in, in so many different contexts, but in space, like everybody listening should understand what an accomplishment that is. And they, they, succeeded so well that there's not really that much interesting to say about the launch is there <laughs> not mm. yeah not really there's there's a beautiful shot uh of the second 
stage engine lighting, which is probably the, the most notable thing I would say from actually watching the launch. Otherwise, yeah, it, it's just very smooth and nominal. While we don't know too terribly much uh, about uh, launch seven, we will know more soon. Um, thank you to Delta V in the chat. Um, we'll have a link uh, to this to this tweet that they pointed out. Um, so this is coming from Michael Sheets. Um, and it turns out actually Astra is going to be holding a press conference. Uh, Chris Kemp is going to be talking. And that is tomorrow. So today is Sunday. Tomorrow is Monday. So that'll be out before this show airs. Um, so hopefully you listener will know more than we do right now because there's not that much to talk about for this launch um i thought it might be nice to talk about the future that astra is looking at right now they have a number of future customers but also they have a couple of missions that are like solidly on the books the next one that's coming up is alana uh alana 41 and they have an net of december 1st so that that actually might launch by the end of the year um, and that seems like the most solid, uh, NET that they have. And then after that, they are flying three different launches of two Tropics vehicles each. I love Tropics. It's a, it's a NASA, uh, mission. It, it is such a good backronym that it almost doesn't feel like it's a backronym. It almost feels like they, you know, just named it and it happened to come out as Tropics, but it's a uh, time resolved observations of precipitation precipitation structure and storm intensity with a constellation of small sats. Like, Hey, that almost rolls off the tongue, mm. right? <laughs> kind of. Um, and so those also have, uh, you know, month resolution on the launch dates. Who knows uh, how much these will slip, but they're doing one after another March, April, May, uh, in 2022. And then after that, they, the, the resolution starts to break down. So they're flying, I believe one launch for Spire or Spire, global uh in the second quarter of next year and then they just signed a contract with planet labs and i don't know how many launches they're doing uh for planet uh i, I get a feeling nobody really knows but that's sometime in 2022 after you get to a whole year as the as the error in your measurement that kind of stops being uh helpful to talk about dates but they are working on uh, designing their own satellite bus, uh, a la Photon. They also filed an FCC application. This one really seems pie in the sky to me, but, um, uh, an FCC application for an internet, uh, mega constellation. The application says, uh, 13,600. And, you know, those kind of things are always like the, the biggest number that they can get away with just in case. Over promise. What is it? Under, under, under promise, deliver. Over, under deliver. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of that that approach and then uh so for these uh up upcoming launches alana and then the three different tropics launches they actually have uh three of those four vehicles in production right now uh serial numbers uh eight nine and ten uh are are already being built and uh it's it sounds like an exciting uh short-term future for astra i I, I hope we get to see all these things go off of that hitch and on schedule with no delays. I'd say things are looking good. I think that that's most likely what we can expect, knock on wood. Yeah, there are always going to be delays, but like yeah. it doesn't, there's, there aren't any big barriers anymore. You know, mm -hmm. it's no longer like right. we're going to have to wait until they uh, iron out all the kinks and get into orbit before we start seeing them commit to customers. And no, they're, they're, they're ready to go. 
Um, I don't even think that they have any, um, what was the name of this Air Force contract? STP, is it? Yeah, STP. Yeah, I don't think they have any more STP missions even. I think they're going on to like real, you know, paying customers or real commercial customers, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm just seeing this here. Uh, the Tropics launches. Did you mention? Sorry, they're going to be flying out of uh, Kwajalein. Oh, are they? Yeah. They're, that's their, their shtick, right? They're very mobile. <laughs> yeah. And you have to be to get to Kwajalein, so. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it all fits in a shipping container or three, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's that's like their their near term future. Um, I just wanted to mention real quick their their long term future includes additional vehicles. So, uh, Rocket Three is what they're flying right now, and depending on which version of Rocket Three you're talking about, you can get uh, anywhere between twenty five and one hundred and fifty kilograms uh, to orbit. And then after Rocket Three, they are also planning Rocket Four, which is looking at. Uh, launching several hundred kilograms. And the Wikipedia page says that they're planning to launch that in 2022. I think that is far outdated. I've got a feeling that uh, it'll only be rocket threes for 2022, but who knows? Like maybe they'll, maybe they'll surprise us with a new vehicle. And then after rocket four, they also have a rocket five planned. And rocket five is really weird. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how this is going to work, but Rocket 5 is a point-to-point suborbital transportation rocket. And so it's basically a Rocket 3 with a third stage, so a second stage between the first and upper stages. And I don't know how this is supposed to work if they are flying disposable vehicles, consumable vehicles. Um, like you're going to be dropping rocket stages down. So you can only really do these hops across the ocean. I mean, I guess if you're doing point to point suborbital flights, that's going to be the case for a long time, no matter what your reusability status is, but that'll be really interesting. It's such a small vehicle that this is not like starships where you can put, uh, you know, a hundred people in and charge them all a premium. So it'll be really interesting to see what, what rocket five winds up being, but given their portability and rapid response, like that might be the key to point to point transportation that, you know, hasn't been able to be cracked uh, in the past. Do we have any more details on this? Because I'm curious as to what other point, like what are they, like where are they going? To another place on earth. Mail delivery, basically. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess, so if, if you want to just run a uh, suborbital experiment that you, you want to recover, like this, this would be the type of way to do that rather than a typical sounding rocket. Yeah, potentially. But, you know. You can also do rapid delivery with something like this. So I, I don't, I don't know what they're planning, but like, I guess it makes sense. I mean, because we had discussed before how point to point, I mean, to do a suborbital launch is going to generally, it's not worth, like, as it were, it's just not worth the trouble, you know? But if it's okay. a small rocket like this, uh-huh. relatively cheap and highly mobile, then maybe you right. can close that business case or whatever. Exactly. Know, or, right. Or because you can close you the logistics. You, yeah. Because yeah. you can fly a single customer as opposed to something like Starship or Dragon. Like, yeah, you could go, you know, from continent to continent, but you, all the speed that's involved there is totally negated by the fact that you have to assemble all these customers ahead of time. But if you're just doing one customer and you can launch within, you know, a very short period of time, yeah, sure. Maybe that Maybe that closes hmm. that gap. That kind of opens up an interesting use case for smaller launch vehicles that I hadn't thought about. Like doing suborbital might be even more useful or lucrative for the companies than doing yeah, orbital stuff. I don't think I would want to go that far, David, but like who knows, you know, um, 
it hasn't been done yet, so you can't really you can't say for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's small enough, right, then again, you don't have to assemble a lot of customers mm-hmm. or passengers and you don't have to fuel up a giant rocket. So, and if it's suborbital, it can most likely be made completely reusable at some point, or at least I would think so, because it's, you know, Maybe, not having to get yeah. to orbital speed. So you can have something that's completely reusable, but also uh, fast, you know, or simple, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Who who knows? It's it's really a fun unknown, isn't it? For for us, I'm sure that mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sure that they've done a lot of business studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. but for us it's a it's a fun fun new idea. I mean you think about it like when, when it comes to like ten, twenty, thirty year horizons, you really have a bad time, a difficult time guessing what's gonna be the next hot thing. You know? And yeah. so some of the things that we're we're working with we're seeing now, you know, with like you know, with the uh, CubeSats, for example, th- those those took off really quick. You know, I feel like when they uh, when, when when they first were kind of proven out, and so I could imagine that suddenly, you know, we're we're now talking about Leo constellate mega constellations, you know, for communications, which is something that didn't quite work uh, in previous iterations. But maybe, yeah, in the 2040s, we'll be talking about how. People are now starting to pay attention to uh, suborbital flights when back in the, you know, 2010s and 2020s, it was such a big deal to just talk about orbital, orbital, orbital. Mm-hmm. And everybody was everybody was aiming at the moon and cislunar space. And it turned out that suborbital was kind of the hot thing in commercial launch. And so who knows, you know, that kind of stuff can surprise us. Okay, so let's do the three short and sweets. What's the first one, Ben? All right. Uh, Tyvek wins contract for very low Earth orbit mission. Tyvek Nanosatellite Systems has won an $8.4 million contract from the Air Force Research Laboratory to conduct an experiment in very low Earth orbit, or VLEO. The AFRL mission, known as Precise Flight Experiments, will examine processes in the ionosphere, which lies between 90 and 600 kilometers of altitude. VLEO, designated as orbits below 450 kilometers, have begun to be seen in regulatory findings since 2017 and are valuable for Earth observation missions, yet challenging due to orbital decay. Next up, European startup tests Aerospike engine. Small launch vehicle company Pangaea Aerospace has successfully tested its Metalox engine prototype. A series of tests of the 20 kilonewton engine, called Demo P1, took place at a DLR-operated facility in Lampelshausen, Germany, and included firings as long as two and a half minutes. Notoriously difficult to develop, Pangaea believes that by using a NASA-developed copper alloy, called GR-COP42, and 3D printing the engines, will solve the problem of producing the complex series of channels for circulating propellants prior to reaching the combustion chamber. The company hopes to demonstrate the larger flight version of their aerospike sometime in the next three years. And then lastly, satellite maneuvers to avoid near collision around Moon. Last month, data from both NASA and ISRO showed that two of their satellites, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and Chandrayaan-2 respectively, were going to pass very close to each other near the lunar north pole. ISRO said the radial separation between the two would be less than 100 meters with a closest approach distance of only about 3 kilometers. Chandrayaan-2 performed an avoidance maneuver which successfully removed the dangerous conjunction. NASA officials said that due to coordination between both space agencies, at no time was either spacecraft in danger. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns. Yeah, it's the dumping ground this week. Yeah. Questions, comments, yeah, and dumping ground. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> just just real quick, the Thrust Me put out a paper. Did either of you guys read it? I clicked uh, no. through it. I, I did not. I, I, like you, only kind of scrolled through it. And uh, unfortunately, I was planning on reading it before the episode, uh, but I just did not get around to it in time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, like, just from clicking through it, like, you can kind of treat this as, like, you want to know more about how, how Thrust Me does their uh, um, their electric thrusters? Here you go. Here's here's a bunch of graphs and charts, and it's, it's pretty cool. Um, I don't think that there's anything... Uh, like groundbreaking in the sense of like how familiar our listeners are going to be with the technology, but like it, it's it's pretty cool to see some you know some hard numbers and details uh, on their engines. All right, welcome to the interview segment. Today we have with us uh, Matthew Coons. He's the head of R&D at Maston Space Systems. And we're really excited to talk to him about a technology that we talked about, uh, I don't know, like last month on the show, uh, which is their fast landing pad uh, technology. Welcome, Matthew. How's it going? It's great. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. We're we're super happy to have you. I uh, I reached out to Mastin to see if we could get somebody on to talk about the fast pads, and like I, I don't want to seem like I'm tooting my own horn, but like we were all kind of floored um, when one of your communications people said, "Yeah, we're big fans of the Orbital Podcast over here," and I was like, <laughs> "Oh, you're lying." Um, but you actually <laughs> said that you were listening, you were re-listening to one of our old interviews before the show, and like. Thank you so much for listening. Like that makes us so happy. That's exactly the kind of show that we want to produce is something that someone like you would like to listen to. Definitely. It's very, very good stuff. And the the prior show I was refreshing myself on was from way back in 2017. You interviewed Chris Hoffman, who was working here and got to give a shout out to, to him. He's now at Astra as launch director mm-hmm. and they just had a successful first orbital launch of their vehicle so oh yeah yeah huge kudos out to to him and his entire team and if you ever get him on the show again since in that interview he was talking about kind of maston's rough test environment out here in the desert i know astra has internal test cells for their engines so see if he's gone a little (laughs) soft getting to work inside all day (laughs) (laughs) yeah will do um okay so uh fast is is so cool what what does fast stand for i wrote it down here somewhere mastin in-flight alumina spray technique correct f-a-s-t in-flight alumina spray technique okay um and so y'all were selected for a phase one nyack award uh this year is that right so last year last year okay like, I don't even know where to start. Like, it's such a cool idea. Why don't you just give us an overview of what FAST actually is? Sure, sure. And that the title is a, is a backronym in finest NASA fashion. So <laughs> FAST Landing Pads is an attempt to solve the problem. So it's a chicken and the egg problem. You want a landing pad on the moon, so you minimize plume surface interactions. You may hear me refer to it as PSI as the abbreviation for that. You want to minimize those PSI interactions on the surface as you're landing. But how do you get the landing pad there? Because you need to land and then go build it. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. And going through that thought process of how do we solve this really led to kind of the non-traditional approach of let's build it as we're landing. 
<laughs> and that's essentially what FAST is. It's, an, it's an, a method to build a landing pad for whatever rocket you are landing, wherever you happen to be landing. And so why do you need a, a landing pad on the moon? Sure. So the plume surface interactions, as you get, get larger in scale and your engines get larger, you tend to big, dig, dig deeper and larger craters on, on the surface. And so... Thanks, Newton. Yeah, it's really physics. The tyranny of the rocket equation, the tyranny of landing a rocket equation. Uh, Philip mm. Metzger would be a wonderful person to have on the show if you ever want to get into the really nitty-gritty details. He's at University mm. of Central Florida, and he's kind of pioneered a lot of the research in this area. And so working with him on a different NASA program where we were actually studying these effects for uh, lunar landers and trying to figure out some of the core fundamental physics. There's also a spectacular XKCD because there's an XKCD for everything. <laughs> <laughs> but they equate the understanding the physics of flowing sand is more difficult than quantum mechanics just because of the number mm. of equations and unknowns in your system that you you start to rapid rapidly have you know hundreds of thousands to millions to billions to trillions of equations can be required to figure out if you wanted to do it purely analytically what's going to happen to the regolith as a rocket comes down so everything's bouncing off each other there's huge pressure gradients everything's flying off into space it's a it's a very chaotic environment essentially what he's found is as you get into these larger lunar landers, and when this project was started, um, the Artemis downselect had not occurred yet. But as you get into these larger lunar landers, you you can trip over into across a threshold. The Apollo-style craters were very wide and shallow, and they tended to throw the ejecta out at very low angles, but still very fast, but very low angles. The trip-over point is when you get too close to your between the surface and the nozzle of your rocket engine you actually get enough pressure build up there that you start to get interactions between the vehicle the ground and the engine and you can trip over into deep cratering which starts to rapidly erode a, a, a hole straight down into the moon and you can get a crater as deep as your engine plume in roughly a third of a second and so that's what we were studying on this other program. And it's very fascinating stuff. It can create a nearly vertical crater nearly instantaneously. And so that hmm. shoots ejecta out and it can even get into lunar orbit. And so that's what Phil's data was showing. So that's something we want to avoid because you don't want ejecta going multiple thousands of kilometers per second, recirculating back up into your vehicle. Hmm. And then you also don't want that going into lunar orbit and you know, potentially taking out LRO or damaging gateway. So it's an important problem. I think it's interesting that like lunar regolith is like, like the dust particles, you know, they're sharp and they're, they're horrible when they're sitting still. And so like, we're talking about, you know, adding kinetic energy to the system and it just, it gets bad. And like the first thing that you think about is like, well, at least the first thing I thought about was, Oh yeah, you know, you you don't want to destroy the the lunar surface, but it gets like it gets bigger from there, right? There are like these concentric rings where it's like, oh well, you don't want to hurt your own spacecraft. Oh well, you don't want to hurt nearby robotic assets. Oh well, you don't want to hurt nearby human assets. Oh, by yeah. the way, you know, nearby is not the limit to this problem. So yeah, like 
it, it, get, it gets bad. It's um, a really fascinating thing when you talk about nearby too, right? It, because you can hurt something that's kilometers away, depending on the line of sight, if it's behind a hill, it's perfectly safe. If it's not, mm. you might have a problem, but mm-hmm. it kind of gives you a de facto keep out zone on the moon. And it really limits the amount of real estate that you can safely land on without interfering with someone else's uh, vehicles or, or experiments. So I think it has long, long lasting repercussions on kind of the, the politics and yeah. how we explore the moon, both as private companies and you know NASA Russia, China. And speaking of like limited real estate, like, do we know, do, do we have solid expectations of how different types of surface materials um, on the moon are, are going to be, you know, affected by this? Like I'm assuming the, the mare are, are pretty resilient, right? Cause there shouldn't be that much depth to loose regolith, I, I believe. But then are, are there other parts of the moon where this becomes a, a bigger issue? Or do, do we have, you know, good expectations for that? Or are we just kind of guessing a little bit? Sure. And, and Metzger would know more than more than me. But as I understand it, the, the top several meters of pretty much all of the lunar regolith is subject to this gardening technique from the micrometeoroid impacts and it, it kind of churns itself over billions of years. So from that perspective, it's all risky. It's all risky. The composition and the particle sizes can can vary a little bit between the highlands and the and the mare. And they think the South Pole regolith is closer to the, the highlands, but we haven't been there yet. So we're gonna have mm-hmm. to go find out. Wow, so best case scenario is meters. Okay, I didn't realize that it was that that dramatic. Yeah. Um, so, like, before we get into fast a little deeper, um, could you tell us a little bit about what the alternative landing pads are? Like, what's on the other side of this chicken and egg problem? Uh, like, I, I, I'm familiar with, like, microwave centering being a proposed technique. And, and there are some, like, uh, concrete materials that they've talked about using like lunar regolith to make concrete what else could we be doing or what what's the the other side of this problem yeah and this is a really fascinating area of ongoing research there's a bunch of really creative people working in this field and maston's been we've been lucky enough to to work with several of them nasa swamp works at kennedy space center they're doing some amazing work here uh, a group called Pisces out of Hawaii is doing some spectacular work here made in space. And then there's a whole bunch of other uh, people and companies doing a a myriad of different solutions. I know there was a group at Texas A&M who also got a NIAC looking at landing pad development. They're kind of trying to use like a thermite style solution. Uh, The Pisces group is looking at, they're kind of mixing in binders to make a cement like product, and we're actually working with them on another NASA program to to build and test a bunch of those pads over the, the coming several months. And then, you, like you mentioned, there's the microwave sintering. I think there's also optical sintering that Honeybee Robotics uh, did some work on where they were just using magnifiers to take the, the sun and oh. create enough heat to do it directly. So there's there's a bunch of approaches here, and I think this is I'm going to say it a little hopefully. I hope there are enough Mm -hmm. lunar missions and lunar bases and lunar attention Mm. and staying power that multiple techniques can be used because each one kind of has a different pro and and con versus the others. FAST is very much designed to be 
the first pad you put down. But just due to some of the limitations of how it's applied, it doesn't necessarily work as well long term. Just because if you think of if you look at a sidewalk or and you and you see those they they cut those lines in them for thermal expansion, we're gonna need the same thing on the moon. The day night cycles are incredibly huge swings in, in temperature, and so that's gonna drive a lot of stress in, in these landing pads and the, the way fast gets put 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 down, it doesn't have any of those features to kind of limit stresses from thermal expansion. So I imagine it's going to kind of crumble and uh, fracture itself over hmm. uh, several lunar nights. But this is just meant as, I guess, like a one or once or twice use, right? Like you don't use it for very long. This is just meant to get you on the ground. And then from there, you can build something more substantial. Correct. So it basically gets the job done. And I was kind of curious, how did you come up with this idea or who thought of the need for it? But then I realized that, you know, the whole, that's kind of what you guys do. You deal with vehicles that have to land on say, you know, the lunar surface. So who else would come up with this? But I was just kind of curious as to how it popped into who's ever head, like, because mm. it's it, it's just something that I never thought about. And then when I, you know, had read about it that one time, I guess, what, like a month ago, I just thought that was the neatest thing because it never even occurred to me. So who had that stroke of genius? Well, thank you. <laughs> nice, of you, to, you. <laughs> nice of you to call it genius. It was me. But okay. uh, we'll we'll see if it works, and we can we can check back in a couple of years and see about that statement. But it was yeah, I, I came up with it. I like to give David Maston a run for his money on crazy ideas here. So <laughs> that's hard to do. <laughs> like in the um, best way, that's hard to do. In the best way, yes, he's got some good ones. So it came down to we uh, you know we started kicking around this problem, and we were doing this work for NASA looking at. The physics and how these craters formed and trying to come up with new equations to model them more accurately. So I was spending a lot of time thinking about how craters form and kind of how the plumes interact with the regolith. And I had done some work and early on in my career, I worked on jet engines and we had kind of ceramic coatings on the turbine blades. So I was familiar with coatings from that perspective and continuing to look at the problem and trying to drive it down to a, a simplest solution and solve that chicken and egg, it, it eventually came down to, well, let's just build the pad as we're landing and make it even simpler. We don't, we won't need a rover. We'll just do it straight with the engines and, and go from that method. Oh, interesting. So you were, you were thinking about the coding beef, like the, the, the deposition before you were thinking about the, the, applicator mm -hmm. oh cool um were, were there any other uh techniques that that you had done any you know any real research into other than you know sticking something to the surface you know we looked at some other type of binders and other types of stuff that we could put down on the surface that maybe would like uv cure or mm. react you could you can mix them up and react and we ended up not going down those those paths we were really trying to minimize the the amount of mass and the and the hover time uh, mm. because you want to do this fast it needs to be done hence the name it needs to be done in seconds yeah. right as you're as you're sitting there hovering with your lunar lander right before touchdown you're burning a lot of propellant so that's mass and that's money. You want to minimize that. So the goal the goal was to get it applied in less than 15 seconds. 
and hard enough wow. to land on. Okay, so so yeah, how do you how do you build a, a landing pad in fifteen seconds? Uh, all right. So for your listeners who may be familiar with some of the, the terrestrial based technology for like coating metallic items or they use it on pipes a lot, there's hot spray techniques, HVOF, high velocity oxygen fuel spray. The way kind of fast steps away from the mold, we use the terrestrial stuff as inspiration. Like we know the core fundamental physics of this process functions because they're doing it right now across the world, large scale industrial processes. Where it breaks down is fast transitions because you need to make a very large pad very, very fast. The HVOF does it in grams per minute like very, very slow deposition rate. And they really, really want extreme high quality binding and interaction between the particles and the surface. And everything has to be cleaned and properly prepped. Uh, sometimes mm. they apply chemicals to make sure everything can adhere properly and get a really good bond. Fast can't do that. We can't go prepare the moon. It's the regolith surface. It's kind of a nightmare to, to work with. And this is a huge void in the literature. No one has looked at applying these coding processes that I was able to find or that any of our team was able to find in the kilograms per second range of application rate and also applying it onto a non-prepared surface. Basically, it just says don't. You, you need to prepare <laughs> your surface and nobody's looked at it in soils. So we end up getting the these really small particle interactions with an unprepared surface and some really wonky thermodynamics to, to make it all work. So we ended up, we're kind of doing some filling in some holes in physics, which is just utterly fascinating to me. Small particle impacts on soil are also kind of an unstudied, at least in the regime that we're looking at. People look at bullets impacting soil, but above that, they stop. And then there's nothing that we were able to find up until you start getting into like micrometeorite impacts and those velocities. So there's a huge velocity gap and we happen to kind of be on the lower end of that. So then how these particles interact with that surface, if you come in too fast and too hot, they, they're too liquid and they just splat like raindrops. And I love that the technical mm. term for that is actually splat. They call it the splat <laughs> process. That's <laughs> one of my favorite things about this project just sounds so silly, but it's so wonderful because it's perfectly descriptive. And so the, the whole interaction between the particles and the surface and how long can you, uh, how, how high can your spacecraft be hovering because you need to, the other difference between the HVOF process and FAST is they're usually on the order of, you know, centimeters to inches away from, from a surface and we're going I want to be 50 plus meters away from the lunar surface to prevent any of those far field exhaust gases from uh, doing too much modification. So your distance and time of flight is increased substantially and the surface you're impacting on is substantially different from kind of the terrestrial standards. So it made it a really fascinating, fascinating project. I should point out any questions you do have, one of the core tenants of the NASA NIAC program, which is NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, it's their kind of advanced, advanced project mm. program. So they're looking 5, 10, 15, 50, 100 years out, trying to get, take a bet on some of the craziest and, and most game-changing technologies. There's some fascinating projects in there. Mm -hmm. and, mm. and, and so 
core tenant of that is they want everything to be published so they can inspire and, and pass that learning on through the rest of the industry. So this project in particular, unlike many projects that come out of commercial companies, uh, this, is, this is an open book. Uh, the full report will be published on NTRS at some point. I don't know when that is. That's up to NASA, but it's 126 pages long. And, it, and ask me anything, and I will go look it up and answer it for you if we if we happened to do that research. And on that note, uh, Matthew, would you mind uh, refreshing our memories uh, of the different phases for NIAC awards? Because this was a phase one award or selection. Co correct, correct. So it's a phase one award. It's $125,000 and nine to 12 month program. So very preliminary kind of research of, of is this feasible? It's a feasibility study and it all mm. has to have a mission centric focus. So it has to be tied to a very particular mission. In our case, it made sense to tie it to the Artemis landings in 2024, mm. well, 2025 now. So that was the, the lens with, with which this was viewed. And then after phase one, uh, there are a few phase twos awarded, I think it's like six to eight a year at this point. And those, we're actually writing our proposal for the phase two now. That's okay. great. Mm. That gets submitted next month. And then after that, they have, I think, one or two phase threes. It's very, this is a very, very hard, hard program to, to get a win in. Uh, it's open to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, any of your listeners can apply. There are no company or budget or standing requirements. You can have an idea in your garage and go get funding from NASA to, to study at this. It's a spectacular program that also makes it incredibly mm -hmm. competitive. So it's very hard to win. It has a, one of the lower, lower win rates. So it's, it's hard to get a phase one. It's even harder to get a phase two and they've only handed out a handful of phase threes. Uh, okay. So you talked a little bit about some of the some of the things that you're beginning to optimize for. And I, I know that they're like the entire point of the study is to find some of those answers. Um, so I, I'd at least like to bring some of them up, even if we don't, you know, really have, have a good solid answer for these, but you talked about like deposition altitude. What about deposition rate? How do you decide how much, uh, alumina you you want to put down on the surface over time. Sure, sure. And as we start getting into the, the technical details, I just want to make sure we acknowledge all of the people that, that helped on this particular project. Big team spread across the country. Um, and some of the, the key members were uh, Dr. Zoheb Hasname. He's at Texas A&M. Dr. Phil Metzger. He's at University of Central Florida. Luke Senesarian at Honeybee Robotics. Jesse Iyer at Dragon Rock. And Dr. Fontes at, at UCF, and Dr. Tangskali, Stefan Lamb, Celine Burke, Chandler Olick, and Shab Sarwar, as well as uh, David Maston and Greg Rickson, Kelly Girardi, and many, many more. So we've had some really, really good people working on this program and could not have done it without them. Okay. Deposition rate. So the deposition rate was very, very much driven by what's, what's your pad diameter? How much of an area do you want to protect? And then how long can you afford to hover? And so that's that's what decides the deposition rate. The knob we can turn there is how thick do you want to make the landing pad? And for that answer, we, we looked at what we expected the pressure and thermal loads on the final landing pad would be as the lander touched down. So since the, the renderings of Starship had kind of thrusters up high 
as one approach to mitigating this PSI problem. Uh, we focused in a lot on the Blue Moon Lander. Uh, it has base mounted engines and, and very thrust level is, is closer to Apollo. So it gave us some, some good uh, legacy data to work with. So we really focused in on that and used that to generate approximate pressure and temperature profiles that the plant, that the landing pads would be subjected to, and that drove our thickness. Okay. And, and so what is determining uh, the pad diameter? Sure, sure. So the pad diameter is determined by, as your plume hits the surface, it then changes direction and it starts to go horizontally and slowly slow down as it loses momentum. At some point, it doesn't have enough energy to pick up those surface regolith particles anymore. And so then it stops being as dangerous or it has bled off enough velocity that when it does pick up those particles, they're not, they're not moving as fast. And so we use that as kind of a, a starting point for the, for that diameter. And a lot of that work was inspired by some of the Apollo LEM uh, CFD that was, that has been done uh, where they were looking at kind of how fast those those velocities and pressures bleed off. It seems like it would be, you know, thick right under the engine and then much thinner as you move out away. Is that the case or does that not matter? 100%. And it almost turns into a little bit of a benefit because far away where you're not getting that direct uh, impingement at the stagnation point, you don't need to be as thick. And you really just need a very, very thin coating to keep the dust from getting kicked up. So physics works with us in that case to kind of optimize the, the distribution of materials in line with where it's actually needed. Yeah, I guess, I guess that kind of makes sense. If it, if you're depositing it with a, a rocket nozzle, it kind of <laughs> <laughs> behaves just, yeah, that's cool. Okay. Uh, and so like what, obviously if you have uh, too little deposition um, or if your deposition rate is too low, you'll either run out of your propellant budget or you'll wind up with a pad that is not fit to purpose. Um, what's on the other end of that spectrum? What happens if you put down too much? Um, does it just start eating into the mass budget of the vehicle or are there things that make the pad underperform? Great question. So I think it's predominantly mass budget and, and hover time of the vehicle. There isn't an upper boundary that I've I've found, um, like a hard upper boundary. The you you will get cooling time effects if you get significantly too thick. So that that would be a hard upper cap. I'm not exactly sure what thickness that'll that'll come into. I'd have to go recheck the the thermal models. But as you deposit each particle and deposit each layer, it starts to cool. And so right now because the part of the, the layers are so thin and the pad itself is relatively thin, we can we can bleed off that heat predominantly through radiation to space because you're, you're looking at a huge uh, empty sky for the most part and that drives that that cooling rate. But eventually if you get too thick, you'll get you won't be able to bleed it off fast enough and so then you'll you'll be too hot to land on. Right. So that that's too thick in terms of of how quickly you're putting it down mm -hmm. because it's, it's radiating up in the direction that it's being, it's, it's not, it's not, the moon isn't acting like a heat sink and, and does working in, you know, what is essentially thin layers, does that allow you to relieve the stress as you go? So you don't 
wor- like, do you have to worry about like differential cooling resulting in, you know, the bottom of your pad suddenly being a lot smaller than the top of your pad and you start getting cracks from the bottom up? That's a good observation. And it's probably going to be a concern because we're putting down the materials so quickly. Again, we're in that, we're in that field where it's not, a, not quite enough data here for kilograms of material being deposited in seconds. So it's, I think it's going to be a concern. I'm trying to mitigate it partially with building it up like almost like a road base. So the, the fluffy regolith has to be ideally compacted so the particles will stick. And we want to minimize that uh, coefficient of thermal expansion mismatch between the base and the particles. So the idea we came up with was to put in the first couple kilograms, basically unheated particles. So we'll, we'll put them in the rocket engine and accelerate them much faster so they, so they get through that heating zone without gaining too much heat. And they'll impact as, as solids. Uh, basically as, as BBs, and they they will start to uh, embed and, and compact into the surface. It's very much like building up a road base. Called up some civil engineer friends for, for some advice on that one, and <laughs> they did think I was insane, which was great. <laughs> but but it, you get a stratification of you don't have too many particles down deep, and then they, get, they start to, to build up and stack up on each other. And, and we actually did some testing with this, with, um, with BBs uh, firing them into, into mm-hmm. regolith simulant back to back to back to back to back to look at, you get some really fascinating like cratering formations and, and little splatter from, from the impacts. And, and then when they impact directly behind each other, you actually weren't getting any sort of ejecta. So they were, they were huh. stacking up. It was very, very interesting. And we're sure. using that to, when you build it up enough, then you, you're mostly hitting other ceramic particles. So then you can start on the splat process to start adhering everything together. And the, and the hope is that helps create that connectivity between the lunar surface and the bottom of the pad. Okay. So, so the, the, the BB experiments is really fascinating to me. So if you have one BB already in the surface and you hit it with another one, you don't get a lot of ejecta. So is that because the, the force is being transferred to, to regolith particles that are already surrounded by other regolith particles? So from the high speed, it looks like as you impact your first, your first one creates a hole and it creates a crater. So it, the mo- momentum transfer pushes all of those particles out of the way. Some of them fly up. Some of them kind of create that traditional crater styling where everything gets pushed out to the side a little bit. And then if you give it long enough, it all slumps back in and collapses in on itself. What we're seeing is if if we have particles that hit back to back and they're roughly on the same trajectory, the regolith doesn't have time to slump back into the hole. And so it just follows it follows the previous particle down. It doesn't run into anything above the surface. So we talked about like the types of regolith that, that we're expecting to see. We're talking about how fast we're putting this pad down. What, what about the engine itself? Like this is something that I, I think is maybe one of the first questions that, um, that somebody looking at this had. I mean, I, th- I think I did is like, 
how do you how do you actually like do this forget what happens to the particles once they're near the surface what parameters in your engine are you having to worry about like before we even get into like a feed mechanism and and those alternatives like do we have to worry about you know you're you're already throttling this engine to hover do you wind up getting into throttle ranges where it's you know, not great for the pad work. Um, do you have to worry about uh, protecting the engine? Like, what are the concerns from from the engine standpoint? I think what we decided was best case for success would to be have a would to be have a separate deployment engine because if you're if you have humans on your lander, I do not frankly see NASA letting me try to put experimental like particles into the rocket engine. I just don't see that getting past the safety boards. So if you have a separate engine, you can mitigate some of that concern. So at least your, your astronauts are safe. Um, but you do have some questions of, okay, now you're putting particles in. How, did, how do you inject them at that massive rate? But to start with, uh, kilograms per second is a lot of particulate. Um, how does that affect the combustion internally? What are the particle trajectories look like? The, the combustion environment is kind of wild in a, in a rocket engine. So you got some recirculation cells, you got everything pushing towards the nozzle. And then how do the particles particles respond to that? And then once they get in the nozzle, what is the what what is their resultant trajectory? We because you're so high up 50 plus meters, you want to as tight a cone as possible. Which again, if you go back to HVOF here on Earth, they get pretty tight trajectories within like two percent, I believe. But they're only three to five centimeters from the working surface, and they have the benefit of atmosphere. Uh, that's that's where okay. The the vacuum on the moon is definitely a negative in the trajectory case because it the plume's going to want to go out to infinity, and so your particles, depending on their mass, comes a momentum transfer. Uh, they're going to want to shift their trajectories outward in in response to the gas pressure. So lots of complexity there. Still definitely working through some of those, and that's what we hope to do in phase two is really look at those internal engine characteristics and bring this from paper into an actual test. Uh, the combustion CFD is incredibly time-consuming and, and challenging, so we want to go start a, start a test program and work through some of this iteratively. I think it'll actually be cheaper than, than doing the CFD in this case. So Matthew, we, we have a question from SciKyle in our Discord chat. Any concerns about binding agent setting up on the spacecraft as well as a landing pad forming below? How do you prevent the spacecraft from bonding to the new pad upon landing? <laughs> Spectacular question. Sticky pad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can land, but you can't leave. It's the Hotel California. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Inside the actual spacecraft, because we don't have an actual, we don't have any sort of binding agent. The particles are just particles, and then we take advantage of the the heating in the engine to to make them sticky. We have looked at some coatings and some other stuff we could do to change the the thermodynamics for increasing the time of flight. Uh, the the small particles tend to radiate away heat very very quickly once they leave the the nozzle. So we have looked at some coatings and, and other stuff to change how they interact, but nothing that makes them sticky. There's no traditional binder agent. And then on the surface, it, it's all going to come down to, to cooling rate. Mm. So they the, the, that top surface cools in about two seconds. And so it's not cold like room temperature necessarily when, when the spacecraft lands on it, but it's only a couple hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. So well, well below the 
liquid temperature of alumina ceramics. So the spacecraft won't stick to it. In fact, it's so thin based on the, the landing pad size and the mass of these human landers, it's, it's gonna, the landing pads are just going to crush through to the lunar surface. Mm, okay. That's I didn't realize that. Would you envision in the ultimate you know, lander actually having a, a system that you know, is kind of aimed downwards and sensing whether or not it would be cool enough to land safely or just based on modeling, you, know, you just got to time it this you know, n many seconds and then you can land safely? That's an excellent point. And yeah, again, for, for human lander systems, I think you do want that closed loop of, mm. of some sort of thermal camera or a way to sense how well the pad is, is being formed up. Because you also wouldn't want to touch down. If something goes wrong, you, you don't want to touch down in a unsafe environment. So I don't know if we've ever talked about the exact amount of or the exact mass of the pad. I realize this depends on the size of the lander, but what kind of, I guess, how much mass are we talking about for each pad, depending on the size of the spacecraft? Yes. Let me try to look up an exact number for you from our trade study. So for a blue moon scale Artemis human landing system, the following conditions may be used to construct a landing pad. The system will use alumina particles with two sizes of material for the initial deployment which is the transition layer. Particles of 0.5 millimeter diameter are needed. This enables the particles to pass through the engine without melting and impact the lunar surface as spheres at approximately 1500 meters per second to create an interface layer of one millimeters thick and compact the surface for the splat layer. After that base layer is deposited, uh, the splat layer consists of aluminum particles, alumina particles, 2.4 e to the negative 5 meters in diameter, and these particles will heat up and liquefy as they pass through the engine, keeping under the temperature where they'll, where they'll go too liquid such that they shear into smaller particles in that very, very turbulent environment. Uh, they'll impact the surface at approximately 650 meters per second and create splats that are 5.6 micrometers thick. Uh, deployment will take 10 seconds for 186 kilograms of alumina, and performed nominally about 30 meters above the surface for a six meter diameter landing pad. Uh, final landing pad temperature after deployment will be 644 Kelvin and will require 2.5 seconds to cool after which the vehicle may land. So that is the conclusion from the NIAC report for the mission study. So about like 180 something kilograms. Correct. Yeah. And then you'd have all your deployment structure. So you need a tank for the particulates and you need a, an engine. So you'll have all that plumbing. And that was one thing I was wondering, because I'm seeing, you know, pictures that show a single tank for particle storage. But I guess if you have different sized particles, would you have multiple tanks? Correct. Yeah, I would either do multiple tanks or do it such that they're stratified so that you, as mm. you as you pull them out, you're pulling out the particles you need and it just seamlessly transitions. But that's, that's a good thing to study in, in phase two as we get mm. to prototyping. Is there history for, for storing powder? Uh, in space? Like, is that something that we've ever done before? I do not know the answer to that. When you said, yeah, you either need two tanks or, or a stratified single tank, I was like, yeah, like, I had already seen that. As soon as Dennis said that, that was exactly the image that popped into my head. And I was like, wait, mm. how do you how do you guarantee that stratification doesn't mix too much in zero G? Do we, have we even have we even tried to do that? Like, do we? So at this scale, I I would think not. So so Luke from Honeybee, who did all these calculations, we worked together on kind of creating a couple different options, and this is the one we we settled on. But they are masters at, at moving particles on other planets. They're doing they have like the planet pack mm -hmm. technology, 
for it's basically a, a vacuum cleaner <laughs> to, to suck up particulates and transfer them through piping systems to, to sample analysis mechanisms and those those were tested on on zodiac and they're headed to the moon and phobos and then in the coming years which is pretty exciting but using a lot of the kind of the core fundamental science that they had to put together for those programs and then adjusting everything for lunar gravity is how we approach that process so works out on paper (laughs) that's good that's a good start so the like the the press communication kind of stuff that I've seen uh, describes the alumina particles as engineered particles. Um, And so I guess that's mostly in terms of size then, huh? Size. And then we have looked at seeing if we need to coat them with anything for thermodynamic reasons, but that's still an open trade. Like what, what expectations do you have of, of your coding requirements? Like, do you have any idea what, what materials might work? Do you like, What's kind of the thought so far? So we've looked at a at a bunch, and this this work was predominantly with uh, Dr. Husnain from Texas A and M. But trying to balance how much energy you're picking up in the engine, and then how fast you're losing that energy as you transition to to the surface. So it's a balancing act. And if you if you pick up too much energy in the engine, you shred your particles because they get too liquidy. And then if you radiate too quickly on your transition to the surface, you you end up with solid particles and they don't splat to get the adhesion. It's a very narrow band of uh, velocities and impact energies that you want to want to hit to get get them to stick together. And so that's a there's all these knobs that we were we were turning in the trade studies and balancing how big does the engine need to be, how long do they need to dwell in the combustion chamber versus how fast can we actually accelerate them and then time of flight to the surface, even calculating, okay, well, the particles are going to be radiating to each other as well as space, and can we get any sort of benefit back? And They're so small, uh, your, your surface area to volume uh, yeah. relationships mean they cool down much faster than I would like them to, so it made it surprisingly tricky. It really sounds like you wouldn't want to put this into the main landing engine. It really sounds like you benefit a lot from having a dedicated engine doing this work. I, I think so, yeah. Then you can tune tune your combustion chamber and your nozzle to, to kind of minimize the, the spray and then maximize or optimize how much time they, they're subjected to heating. So it's time for our second to last of our traditional final questions. So Matthew, where would you like to be found on the internet? So you can find me on LinkedIn, and you can see a lot of the, the work we do at Mastin.aero. That's M-A-S-T-E-N dot A-E-R-O is our webpage. And if you're interested in me personally, you can find me at MatthewKoons.com. Okay, awesome. And that's Coons, K-U-H-N-S. That is correct. And that's predominantly a photography page, so that's a hobby. Ooh, but if you want rockets, okay. you can stick to the Mastin page. And and there are going to be a lot of links uh, in the show notes uh, to YouTube videos and and whatnot. So definitely check it out. And uh, uh, Mastin was kind enough to provide a couple of images that that'll also be in the show notes. Okay, so um, our final question. We recently changed it. Uh, now we're asking our guests to play a game of overrated and underrated with us. Um, so just as a, as a quick refresher, this is a quick fire list of products or concepts. And we would like you to tell us uh, 
If you think the world sees too much value in these things, too little value in them, or, you know, in the rare case, maybe that the world correctly values them. Are you ready to play? Sounds like I could get into some trouble. So sure, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, honestly, this time, uh, there, there's nothing controversial. I would, you know, I, I, I want to have something that's, you know, at least got a little bit of shock value, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't really have anything terribly, terribly scary in this one. So I think you're going to be okay. All right. First up, overrated, underrated, the high desert. You have to go underrated. It's beautiful. Overrated, underrated, the Artemis program. Mm, that's that's a tough one. I think underrated. I don't think it gets enough attention in the wider world as it should. Mm. We're going back mm -hmm. to the moon. Uh, overrated, underrated, powder coating spray guns. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Say under underrated again because most people don't give them much thought. <laughs> well, and you know if they if they had rocket engines in them, I think people probably would. All right, uh, overrated, underrated, the moon as a nature preserve. Ooh, I'm gonna have to say overrated on that one, mm. simply because there's too much we can learn. Let's say there's no nature on the moon, but I guess you mean the natural environment, right? Because there, otherwise, heck, there's nature. What are you talking about? Everything <laughs> besides humans is nature. Well, that's one way to describe it. But when I think of a nature preserve, I think of a you know, I think of wildlife, I guess, but that's just a, I guess that's just my earth bias. Yeah. I was going to say trees and wildlife. Great, great way to show your earth privilege. All right. uh, <laughs> I, 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 to, to add to that, I would say if we can mine water from the moon to get spacecraft into the far solar system and go find life at Enceladus or Europa, that is, that is a worthwhile endeavor in my mind. Well, hey, uh, this is going to be fun. My last one is overrated, underrated the moon as a material resource. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if it's over or underrated. It probably depends who you talk to, but we'll go under underrated. I think people seem stuck on helium three and there's a mm. lot more there. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Okay, well, Matthew, this has been absolutely a delight getting to pick your brain. Uh, thank you so much. I'm honored you were interested in what we're working on and, and wanted to talk to us today. So thank you so much for being interested. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're interested in so many more things than we can actually talk about, but this just had enough weirdness in it that it was irresistible. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of um, weird. <laughs> in it's, a good way. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, you know... Uh, in words. innovative yep. ideas are, are always bizarre and, and unexpected by their very nature. We got a lot of them. Moving on to This Week in Spaceflight History. So we have a couple of winners. We have Deskin Miller and uh, The Greek. Then we have some other winners who also get bonus points. We have Cy Kyle, Kuba, Poiskonka. Uh, I don't know if I said that right. Sorry if I didn't. Uh, we have Peter McMally, Ben Hallard, Adam Fuller, and M. Hitizki. Wow, the, okay, so these are some interesting names. Not only interesting names, but like new names. Hey, new ones. welcome, yeah, new guys. Ones. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you for chiming in. Uh, I, I believe mm -hmm. that... Both Kuba and uh, Hitsinski are Hitsky. Oh, Hitsky. That's how you say it. Okay, Hitsky. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think they're both first time guessers, first time bonus pointers. So like, good yeah, job. Yeah, that's awesome. Way, way to way to pick your battles. Do you think that maybe the reason why we got so many correct guesses is because they were primed? Um, because uh, this is a this is an event that we've done previously, and maybe I should have known so from the clue last week because I had an yeah. inkling of what you were referring to, uh, but I didn't pick up on it. Well, what was the clue? Uh, the clue was what was the imitable, unmitigated gall in the face of invading Romans? Romans? In, yeah, invading Romans. Yeah, I could pull it up if you want verbatim. Once. Yeah, I don't. I don't give a shit. So uh, <laughs> that that was the clue this week. Um, 
another good clue would have been um uh Medel de Bronze, which was David's clue when he covered this exact same topic what last year or the year before? Uh, I think it was last year, yeah. Yeah, th- this was a duplicate. Sorry guys. <laughs> like Mikopo, like I did I didn't check. I should have. It looked familiar and because I didn't do the research, it wasn't familiar enough that I recognized it as something we'd already done. Didn't check with the boys. Yeah, this is a duplicate. So this week in spaceflight history as well as fifty two weeks ago in spaceflight history is the twenty sixth of November nineteen sixty five was the launch of Asterisk. Asterix, the first French satellite. And yeah, we, we already did Asterix. Uh, the clue is in reference to the, uh, very popular French, uh, comic that looks at the Gauls and, uh, one of G, G A U L, not G A L L. And, you know, one of the, uh, starring characters is named Asterix. And that is also the name of, or that's also who this satellite was named after. Oh, what's even the point of explaining the clue at this point? Um, <laughs> one, one of our, our guessers actually referenced the German name of the comic, which is really interesting. It's, um, Der Unbesigvara Galliere, but, but it's, you know, uh, the undefeatable, the indefatigable Gauls. And like, uh, Hey, you know what? That, that's. That's pretty good. So I, I went over, uh, David's coverage last year and he pretty much got everything because there's not a lot of information on the internet, uh, about this mission. But one of the things that I don't know if you talked about, David, is why this, this satellite wound up never communicating back with the earth. So it, it was sent up it with the intention of doing, um, upper ionosphere science, which is pretty cool. They also had, I, I think just accelerometers on board, which I don't know how helpful those would be if, you know, you're in free fall. Um, but apparently they were trying to do some amount of position or acceleration data, uh, determined on the spacecraft and being back home. And then they also were going to do observation of the DMI upper stage, the, the launcher's upper stage. And I don't believe it had any cameras on board, but maybe they're doing some sort of like radio observation, but none of this science got done, um, because it was damaged when the fairing was deployed. And I, I don't know if you mentioned that last year, David. I know that I mentioned that it was damaged and eventually yeah. it, it fell through because they didn't even want to pursue the project because this was a way of establishing, of uh-huh. France establishing its own, its own like nuclear arms technology, but they actually shifted that to the European Union as a whole, I think. Right. Mm, yeah. I'm probably getting some of that wrong. But, yeah. No, no, no. I, th- I, th- I think you're, you're, pretty much uh on the no- uh, on the money and when you covered this you you were mostly talking about the politics and so I was like okay well cool I can go find more information about the engineering and it just it doesn't exist because yeah, yeah. this was you know the the vehicle itself was sort of an afterthought you know in a way so yeah that that's what I got I I looked for for more interesting things and it just I couldn't find anything and it was too depressing to continue. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that concludes this week in space flight history. <laughs> so next week is uh, the 30th of November through the 6th of December. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1990, the anti-hero. The anti-hero. And we have not done this one before. 
I'm assuming. At least not since I've been part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so next week in 1990, the anti-hero. All right. Well, I don't know what that is in reference to, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So moving right along then to upcoming spaceflight events, we got six of those. So a lot of those coming up. What's the first one, Ben? Yeah, it's Dart. We talked about this last week. Um, I think just because it's so close to this upcoming episode, right? I don't think it was actually delayed. Correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, right. So DART is the double asteroid redirection test. Didymus is, well, Didymoon is going to get slammed into. Didymus B is going to get, uh, going to get a satellite in the face. So exciting. Uh, uh, this is going to be very cool. Okay. So that is flying, uh, on a Falcon 9 Block 5. It's so cool to see Falcon 9s, uh, doing planetary missions. The launch is currently scheduled for Wednesday, November 24th at 0621 hours UTC. This is flying out of Vandenberg, by the way. Um, not out of, uh, not out of Florida. Okay. And next up on November 24th, we have a, a first of three Soyuz upcoming Soyuz launches. And so this one will be taking the Prechal uh, module to the International Space Station. And so a little bit of background, the Prechal, which is also known as the Uzlovoy module, or UM, uh, will be ultimately uh, docking at the nadir end of uh, Nauka, which has recently uh, come to station. And as uh, I believe last week, David liked to like to point out, uh, fingers crossed that there won't be any issues <laughs> with it heading there. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. And so, uh, Preachal will be, uh, 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 flying on a, uh, modified progress, uh, called the progress M dash UM, uh, for, uh, the UM referencing the Preachal. And what, uh, surprised me, I didn't realize is that this originally, this Preachal node was intended to serve as the only permanent element of the, uh, OPSEC space station, which was a Russian proposed third generation space station hmm. uh, that was canceled in uh, uh, 2017, it looks like. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, uh, I guess that you know, I hadn't even heard of that ever. Did you, did you guys know about this OPSEC? <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah. And OPSEC uh. doesn't stand for Operation Security. Uh, like I assumed, it stands for Orbital Piloted Assembly and Experiment Complex. That's kind of cool. Yeah, so this was something that uh, was being dabbled with, but uh, yeah, so preach all though, we'll still fly. And so uh, this launch, again, it's November 24th, and it's at 13.06 UTC, which is uh, 8.06 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this one of the three Soyuzes will be flying out of Baikonur. After that, on November 24th slash 25th, we have a Soyuz launching maybe an EKS-5. We don't know. Uh, so this is a classified payload, but um, it is likely to be the EKS-5, which is an early warning satellite for the Russian military. Yeah, a.k.a. Tundra. Yep, so this will be in a Tundra orbit. Orbit. Very cool. Um, and it will be flying on a Soyuz 2.1B or a Soyuz in the 2.1B configuration uh, with a frigate upper stage. It'll be launching at 030 hours through 0230 UTC on the 25th uh, or on the 24th if you're, you know, to the west of that dateline, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> or to the west of that time zone. Uh, so yeah, check that one out if you can. And that'll be launching from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia. After that, we're going back to Prichal. It will be rendezvousing and docking uh, with the ISS uh, on Friday. So this is going to be November 26th. We're switching over to Eastern time because it's on NASA TV. So the coverage begins at 9.30 a.m. And then the docking is scheduled at 10.26 a.m. I really want to tune in to see 
this really bizarre puffy headed uh progress <laughs> carrying this this giant node module uh, it'll be cool to see the uh the the progress um deorbit at some point in the future as well because most progresses take their head with them when they leave yeah that's really neat <laughs> to think about yeah uh, and then after that, we have on November 29th, Monday, a preview briefing for the uh, U.S. ISS Spacewalk number 78. And so this will be taking place at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on NASA TV. And the following day, early in the morning on November 30th, Tuesday, at 5.30 a.m., uh, coverage will begin of the spacewalk. And so this will uh, feature uh, veteran astronaut Tom Marshburn and rookie astronaut Kayla Barron who, since this gives me the opportunity to point this out, is the first astronaut, uh, yeah, first American astronaut younger than me to ever fly. <laughs> uh, not not cool. younger when they flew, but just younger than me, period, was born wow. after I was born. Uh, hmm. For the wow. first time, this astronaut class finally got down to there. <laughs> and so uh, this spacewalk is specifically to replace the Port 1 Truss S-band subassembly communications antenna uh, with the uh, spacewalk scheduled to begin at about 7.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And so keep an eye out for that. All right. And then after that, we have another Soyuz launching on November 30th slash December 1st, very similar to the previous one I just mentioned. So this is also going to be on a Soyuz 2.1B with a frigate upper stage, but this one is launching out of French Guiana, so that's different. Um, and yeah, I didn't, I forget that these happen actually. They, mm -hmm. they seem pretty rare. The last one was what, about like a year ago, I think? Um, so they don't happen too yeah. often, I don't think. Um, but uh, this one is launching the Galileo 27 and 28, which are part of uh, the European navigation constellation. So I guess it's just, you know, kind of like the European GPS, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's so funny because I was just going to say, how angry would Europeans be at us if we called it the European <laughs> G uh, GPS? No. <laughs> NASA's is the GNSS, right? Global yeah. Navigation Satellite yep. System. But the copy here says it's uh, Europe's Galileo Navigation Constellation. So I guess in some yeah. sense it does sort of belong to Europe. But Galileo I, is yeah. different than GNSS, isn't it? I thought GNSS was the general generic term for that. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. Right. Like sure. uh, the, the GLONASS versus Beidou versus GPS versus Galileo. Those are all GNSS. Yeah, the, you're right. The generalized term is Global Navigation Satellite System, GNSS. Yeah. So this one was uh, delayed from mid-September. And so now it will be mm. launching. And it was delayed from November 22nd as well. So, okay. So now it'll be launching on November 30th. Uh, slash December 1st, depending on your time zone again, and it'll be launching at 035 UTC on the 1st. So, and that's from uh, the ELS, I don't know what that is, uh, something launch site in Cinemary, French Guiana. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and with that, let's do over the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and a Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to the large number of people who joined us for today's very fun show. We had Deathkin, Cy Kyle, Kenton, Mike, Colin, Delta V, Chris, a.k.a. Stygarfield, all joining us in the chat. 
today. It was wonderful. Thank you. Saving us from making dumb mistakes as we record. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. I believe our first generation mission patches are all sold out. But uh, right now, if you go to the store and buy something, I believe nothing is in stock. I I'm probably going to turn it on at a discounted price so you can get stickers without a patch. Uh, but just FYI, that's that's going to be down for a little bit. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.